Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Germany Elects, a special world review podcast series on the German election from the New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff international editor of The New Statesman, in Berlin. It's now official. Germany has a new government. Angela Merkel has stood down as chancellor after 16 years. Her centre-right Christian Democrats are out of power. And a new centre-left coalition, led by the Social Democrat Olaf Scholz, is taking charge. In this bonus follow-up episode of Germany Elects, I'll be exploring the incoming government's vision for the country. What's in store for Germany's place in the world? There is really a different tone on Russia and China even more so. And I think you see the footprints of the Greens and the FDP all over this chapter. That's Jana Pulerin of the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'll also be asking the economist Christian Ordendahl, what will the new government mean for Europe's industrial powerhouse? The modernization ambition, the ambition on climate change because of the Greens is also clearly there. And that requires quite a bold investment agenda. Let's start with a recap. This was Olaf Scholz on September 28th. Two days after the German federal election. There was a very successful social liberal coalition in Germany from 1969 to 1982. And I'd add that it grew out of grand coalition. Willy Brandt became chancellor in 1969. Helmut Schmidt held that role for the second part of this time. And we later had a very good time in government with the Greens. We have good memories of that too. So to form a social, ecological, liberal coalition now has foundations in the history of German governance. The election itself had produced three clear winners. Scholz's Social Democrats, or SPD, had risen five points to about 26% of the vote. 
the Greens had risen six points to about 15%, and the Conservative Liberal Free Democrats, or FDP, had risen about one point to 11.5%. In the clip you've just heard, Schultz was setting out his ambition to form a so-called AMPO, or traffic light, coalition of the three parties, so-called as their colours are red, green, yellow. New Statesman readers will have known that this was a possibility. We tipped this as a realistic chance as early as March. Well done us. But many had seen it as a long shot. Post-war Germany has never had a federal government made up of three different political families. Could the three distinct parties, bringing together the political philosophies of social democracy, environmentalism and liberalism, really forge a common set of plans for the next four years? My wichtigste Botschaft dazu lautet... The answer came sooner than many expected. Here is Scholz again, now flanked by senior figures from all three parties, announcing on November 24th that they had reached a coalition deal. The 177-page document pledges a decade of investment in modernizing German infrastructure, 80% of energy from renewables and ideally no more coal power by 2030, an array of liberalizing social legislation and a proactive Atlanticist Germany in the world. Its ambition is captured in the title, Mehr Fortschritt wagen, or Dare More Progress. Some heard in that echoes of the legendary SPD Chancellor Willy Brandt. Scholz and his new allies have consciously aligned themselves with Brandt's slogan, Dare More Democracy, under which he led a boldly modernizing federal government from 1969. It's an exhilarating comparison, but does it set up the new traffic-like government for disappointment or even failure? We'll see soon enough, as Scholz and his ministers begin work. Some names to look out for are Annalena Baerbock of the Greens, Germany's new foreign minister, her party colleague Robert Habeck, the new economy and climate minister, and Christian Lindner of the FDP, who takes over the powerful finance ministry. As a new era in German politics begins, another has come to an end. On December the 2nd, Angela Merkel bid her farewell at a military ceremony in Berlin, surprising some by choosing a song by the so-called godmother of punk, Nina Hagen, to be played by the brass band. In her valedictory speech, Merkel wished the new government well and left with a warning about the precariousness of democracy. In particular, the past two years of the pandemic have held a magnifying glass over the great importance of trust in politics, science and public discourse, but also how fragile it can be. Now Merkel has gone, and a new German government takes on that responsibility. More on that shortly. Well, joining me to discuss the new government, I'm delighted to have Jana Pulerin, who is the head of the Berlin Office of the European Council on Foreign Relations and senior fellow. Welcome, Jana. Hi. And we're joined by Christian Ordendahl, who is the chief economist at the Centre for European Reform, also here in Berlin. Welcome, Christian. Hi, Jeremy. So I wanted to get both of your thoughts on the coalition deal, on what we know about the new traffic-like government and what to expect from it, particularly some of its first challenges. So I guess my first question is a broad one, and that's simply we've had now two weeks, uh, a little over two weeks, since we got the coalition deal. That's enough time to sort of digest it and, and give it some thought. 
Could I hear from both of you, perhaps starting with Jana, uh, what your initial reactions were, what you made of it? Did you think it was a, a, a good document? Were the things that were obviously missing? And was there anything in it that surprised you? Well, I was particularly looking at the Europe chapter and the foreign uh, security and defense policy chapter. And I was actually pleasantly surprised, maybe because I was a bit traumatized uh, because of the debates we had uh, for the past four years on all things uh, security and defense related you know, the kind of uh, kicking the can down the road approach when it came to. Uh, the tornado uh, successor plane decision and and armed drones and all this so I and and so I, I was um, expecting much worse and I was pleasantly surprised I think there is a super strong commitment uh, to to the European Union European integration all over um, the treaty not only in the Europe chapter um, I think uh, how kind of the special responsibility of Germany for the EU is framed is, is quite strong I like that we talk about strategic um, sovereignty uh, locked uh, in the treaty and on security and defense I, I see all the right boxes ticked basically and I, I also liked uh, that we change course on uh, somewhat at, uh, on Russia and China, and that we have a tougher approach there. Where while we are, of course, uh, staying true to ourselves and our nature, and there is also a hell lot of continuity in there. But uh, yeah, overall, positively surprised. Great, and we'll come we'll come on to the foreign policy picture in more detail in a bit. Uh, Christian, what about you? Because you you came on Germany elects a few weeks before the election, and we talked a bit about the the sort of the shifting German economic debates and whether or not a new government, particularly one led by the Social Democrats, would bring in a more proactive investment agenda. What did you make of the document? So I think it, w- what I found interesting is that those three parties, on some issues, looked for genuine common ground. And whenever they found it, I think this agreement is very bold, right? And then you have other parts where you can already by reading this text realize how painful these negotiations must have been to find some form of compromise between essentially very contradictory views of the three parties. And and some of the economics agenda falls into that second category. And the sort of modernization ambition, the ambition on climate change because of the Greens is also clearly there. And that requires quite a bold investment agenda, right? But if you look at the sort of the the, the financial details of how this is supposed to come about, um, you can tell that this 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 took a while. Um, and th- the way it's been sort of agreed now probably leaves enough room for this investment agenda. So we're going to see a sort of a, a, a properly progressive investment agenda, but uh, w- within limits, right? Because we have going to have Christian Lindner as finance minister and sort of the fiscal hawkishness, if I may call it that, um, is one of the unique selling points of the, of, of the Free Democrats. And they needed to preserve that image. And I think in the coalition agreement, they have found a compromise that that is workable. I mean, I was struck by the fact that many of the the more positive reads on the investment aspect of the coalition deal were were main, mainly happy because because of what wasn't there. Things weren't ruled out that some people thought the FDP would demand be ruled out, and so you've got this sort of 
vaguely positive language about the role of the KFW, Germany's public investment bank, in in driving some of this investment. You've got relatively open language about the European Stability and Growth Pact and how you can make that more pro-growth. But it sort of leaves a lot of this, as as you say yourself, to to be debated and discussed. Do you see this being a major cause of conflict within the government you know a lot of this has been left open open by the coalition deal that does create opportunities for a progressive agenda on investment and, and, and macroeconomics but it does also create the possibility that you have loggerhead a loggerhead type relationship between say Lindner as the finance minister and Robert Harbeck as the economy and climate minister trying to drive through a lot of this investment with Scholz as the social democrat chancellor do you see this being an an area for conflict Potentially, yes. But I think that the the way this agreement, the, the way the negotiations happened, right, I think surprised everyone in that how constructive and how secretive they were and how much all three parties are sticking to the compromise they have found, even though it wasn't really, for example, on the on, on the spending front necessarily that close to what the Greens had, uh, had wanted in there, right? But still, the Greens are sticking with that. I think this current COVID crisis in Germany shows how strongly these three parties intend to stick together to that compromise that they have found and and sort of have, have the back of, of, of the party that is, that is in charge or that is responsible for whatever agreement was found. So I think there's this, you know, there, there is room for conflict, of course, but I think they have clearly mapped out internally what that means and what they are willing to do and not to do. You're absolutely right. It's, it's important what's not in there. So there are no firm red lines on, on some issues, which is opens up a sort of constructive German position in the European debate. And that's, that's very important. But I think on the fiscal side, one, one of the things to keep in mind is that basically the conservatives, and I'm counting the Free Democrats also as a conservative party, they have sort of boxed themselves in, right? Because they have agreed to climate targets which are now being enforced by the courts. And there are two ways to achieve them, either through tough regulation and higher carbon prices, which clearly is politically very challenging to put into practice, or through a very bold public investment agenda, right? So there's no place to hide for fiscal conservatives. If they don't want a bold investment agenda, then they have to show how else they're going to achieve those targets. And I think it shows in this document that they want to combine a very bold climate agenda with uh, with with this sort of investment and trying to avoid the very harsh sort of carbon, carbon taxes and, and regulation route. While we're on the domestic picture, I mean, one of the other things that struck me about the coalition deal was how much social liberalization there is in there. And I guess I guess that makes sense because it's an area where the three parties can broadly agree. They're closer on some of these subjects than they are on economic policy. But it's it's still quite striking. You know, you've got the legalization of cannabis, voting at 16, a more liberal citizenship regime, new rights in terms of reproductive rights, rights for LGBT. BTQ plus people that that was that was quite striking, and I hadn't expected quite so much on that front. I wonder if either of you'd like to come in on on on, on that dimension. I, I have to agree; it's that that is a very bold part, and this is what I meant with sort of genuine common ground. Whenever they found genuine common ground, they really went for it, and this is this is I think clearly reflected in these parts. So it, it also shows that after sixteen years of conservative rule, basically Germany was in for some sort of modernization step. Right, because we have we had made progress under Angela Merkel, 
but at a snail's pace compared to sort of the progress uh, that that uh, Western societies and um, overall have made. And so I think this is this was, you know, in the car. But most of the discussion was on other issues where 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 the parties did not agree on. So maybe that came as a bit of a surprise. But it's yeah, it's a that's a, that's a that's a great step um, in the right direction. And I'm grateful to the three parties that they really went bold boldly for it. Yeah, well, that's 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 the common ground. Um, let's let's turn to foreign policy now. And I mean, one of the other striking aspects to this, and I think Yana, you, you you've alluded to it already, is the is the firm language on China. And I mean, I wonder if that too has the potential to be a dividing line within the coalition, because you have on the one hand the SPD, which is at least parts of which are trad- traditionally closer to the view that you, you should see China primarily as an export partner, you know, closer to that view that's prevailed um, to some extent under Merkel. And then you have the Greens and the FDP, which are traditionally more hawkish on, on, on China. How do you see that playing out in the new government? And is, are there any clues that you take from the language in the coalition deal? So I think there is really a different tone on Russia and China, even more so uh, on China than on Russia. And I think you see the footprints of the Greens and the FDP all over this chapter. At the same time, I think a coalition treaty is basically a letter of intention. <laughs> so we have to see how this plays out uh, in real life. And I still see that, for example, uh, from from the SPD, uh, first and foremost, but also from business uh, lobbyists, there is also a strong emphasis on don't rock the boat here, don't rock the boat too much, um, and we need to have a stable relationship with China and don't be too hawkish. And I, I see basically two powers working against each other to a certain extent, continuity and change. And in the end, what I really hope is that uh, the result will not be paralysis, but that, that it will be moderate, progressive China and, and Russia policy, because I think that the Greens are not ready to let to let their ambitions um, go. And I think it also, can, especially the language on China, bringing Taiwan in, mentioning Hong Kong, and uh, all this, I think, shows how much the debate in Germany in the end uh, has shifted in, in recent years um, on China. What, what, I, what I'm a bit more worried is that um, kind of this hawkishness uh, is then also backed up by, by the military commitment, by hard power. Um, and if, yeah, if there is a readiness um, also to, to see kind of the, the defense and security aspects of the treaty as part of the approach vis-a-vis China and Russia. I'd like to ask you about the role of foreign minister in all of this, because it's been it's it's a sort of commonplace in Berlin that the foreign ministry isn't what it was, that it that it was, you know, having having been this kind of engine room of foreign policy under, for example, Joschka Fischer in the last Red-Green government, it's sort of been sidelined under Merkel and foreign policy has been done from the Chancellery. Um, now, the big open question is whether that changes now that now that Merkel's going and now that you have Annalena Baerbock entering, you know, a, a Green like Fischer entering the foreign ministry. And, and Baerbock's given a couple of interviews uh, in the last week or so, uh, one with uh, Der Spiegel, one with the uh, newspaper Tads, where she it feels like she's doubled down on some of the the sort of the tough language on on autocracies and values that we saw in the coalition agreement. I think obviously Schultz subscribes to the vast majority of that, if not all of it. But I mean, do, do you see foreign policy being driven more from the foreign ministry again? I think there will be certainly uh, the attempt 
to do so. Annalena Baerbock will try to undo the recent power shift, uh, at least to a certain extent, and will try to own many of these portfolios or influence them. At the same time, I don't see the chancellery backing down, or I, I, I still see Olaf Scholz committed also to, to deal with the big foreign policy portfolios himself. But Actually, I think it's a huge chance also for the for the Foreign Office because uh, a young woman comes in, I think it's a healthy breath of fresh air. She has ambitious ideas and, and I think uh, she can really be very successful despite the fact that yeah, the importance of the Foreign Office has been reduced. What I fear, though, is that she is in a somewhat difficult position now after the election campaign because she is weakened in her own party. She is, even though the results for the Green Party were much better this time than in the previous federal elections, she is seen as somewhat not having delivered. So she, I think, yeah, that that because also of the way she did the election campaign, some amateurish mistakes that were, were done in the broader public perception, people might think, is she up to the task? And and so I think she, there is also some uphill battle for her and she really needs to basically show early on that she's fully capable and that she can do it. And I think there is also an, an enormous pressure on Annalena Baerbock. After the break. You know, this this notion leading from behind is... Um, in the German context, uh, always uh, the equivalence to no leadership. But I think in this case, it's different. I, I see him really uh, as a leading figure. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
I'd like to turn to you know, the man at the heart of it all, Olaf Scholz. And we, we've talked about him on this podcast before ahead of the election. But I mean, obviously, we can look back at his time as mayor of Hamburg, at his time as finance minister, and draw some lessons about how he runs a team, how he, how he leads. But I mean, Christian, I wonder if you'd like to add any thoughts on what we can expect from a Chancellor Scholz, what sort of leadership he'll provide, how he will compare to Merkel, what sort of you know, figure he will, he will cut on, on, on the world stage. Is there anything that, that we've learned in the last few weeks or that you'd point out as, as, as being something we can expect from him? So just before that, I want to come come back to Annalena Baerbock for just for one second, because we tend to think of Annalena Baerbock as sort of young and inexperienced, right? And we never say the same about Christian Lindner, for example, right? Even though the age difference between them is not even two years, I think. And Christian Lindner did not have any, does not have any executive political experience, right? And so I think this is what Jana says is com- correct, but also... It, it always worries me a bit that we tend to think that Annalena Baerbock needs to prove herself because apparently she's a young woman, whereas, you know, Chris Lindner, uh, who nobody calls a young man, even though he's just two years older than her, apparently does not have to prove himself despite having never had any executive um, office. And this is a big difference, for example, to Olaf Scholz, who's basically had any possible job in the German government that you can have, right? So his wealth of experience from being a mayor of Hamburg, from being a labor minister, from being a finance minister and vice chancellor, now to the chancellery, I think this this will show in sense of continuity of a sort of, you know, centrist, stable, rational, calm leadership. And he has sort of positioned himself in this election campaign successfully as the continuity candidate, also in terms of style uh, from Angela Merkel, not necessarily an exciting orator or, you know, but uh, someone who can provide leadership in a sort of calm and rational manner, right? And this is sort of what he will probably continue to do. His main job, and I think he more than anyone else, is looking ahead towards the election in 2025 because he knows that this is sort of his project. This traffic light coalition is way of governing now, and he needs to make this a the default option for the 2025 election in the eyes of the voters. So for him, keeping this coalition together and providing sort of the leadership from the center, I think this will this will continue to be his style. Jana, would you like to come in on that? Yeah, just a footnote, because I think absolutely uh, Christian Lindner needs to, to prove that he's up to the task. And I think this is by no means clear, also looking at his, his background. But I think Annalena Baerbock is in a somewhat more difficult position because expectations were so high when her candidacy was announced, when she was um, basically declaring that she was running for chancellor. And so, yeah, she was loaded with expectations and she she will always be measured against this 20%, 25 promise that uh, basically was there when, 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 when she started to announce her candidacy. And, and so, Looking at Annalena Baerbock, I still think there is a widespread perception that she has not delivered, whereas Christian Lindner doesn't suffer from this because nobody was expecting him ever to deliver, I don't know, 25% of the votes. And I think that makes it now, in retrospect, more difficult for Annalena Baerbock. But but Christian has certainly a point that that this is also a gender issue and that we underestimate uh, Annalena Baerbock uh, also because, yeah, there is kind of some sort of gender bias. Yeah, I think there's, there's a, both, both of you make very fair points on, on, on that front. And, you know, yes, 
I think Linda is getting a comparatively easy ride, but then he is also a, a more established figure on the, the German national stage. I mean, when you think back to 2017, when he was possibly going to become finance minister under a, a so-called Jamaica government with the Greens and the Christian Democrats, you know, that, at that point, Baerbock was barely known in national politics. I think she, her, her rise has been more um, speedy. And perhaps that means that she's kind of under a more intense sort of scrutiny, but there's definitely there's definitely some sexism in it as well. Just quickly on shots, I'd like to pick up on something you were saying, Christian, about you know he, him styling himself as the continuity candidate, as the reassuring figure at the centre. I mean, do you think that matches the scale of the government's ambition? Because they you know they titled this coalition agreement, you know, mehr Fortschritt wagen, dare more progress, and 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 it's it's quite a dynamic agenda. Big changes on social legislation, promise of a decade of investment a clear shift in foreign policy, as Jan has mentioned, major kind of climate action on the cards. You know, he, he, he's a reassuring figure and he's quite a Merkel-like figure or he's sort of presented himself as such. Do you think he's actually got the sort of the, the grit and the willingness to shake things up that that sort of agenda demands? I think he does. And looking at how he basically carefully crafted uh, the EU recovery fund and how he basically built an alliance first with the French and but also with the German Chancellery and how he brought everybody on board with this, which, which was basically a pretty bold idea and, and difficult to sell also to the German public. And I think he's just the quiet figure in the background, but I think he's definitely a leader. And but what I like about him is that he early on emphasized that he really wanted an inclusive government, that he, I think he is not going to dominate this, but he's trying really to to hear everybody and to, to really build something that has the support of all three parties. And I see him basically, you know, this this notion leading from behind is um, in the German context, uh, always uh, the equivalence to no leadership. But I think in this case, it's different. I, I see him really uh, as a leading figure. Christian, would you like to come in there? I agree. Yeah. And is this, um, I, th I think the German public is aware of the need for change and the need for a sort of bold modernization decade. Even the CDU ran with that slogan, right? And that's that basically says a lot. They didn't say, we want everything to stay the same. They were saying, it's time for a modernization decade. So basically the German public is aware of that. And so Olaf Scholz's role is, as Jana said, as a leader, but also as a sort of, of skillful, calm, rational political management of that important transition. The German public is fully aware that we need to make big progress on climate change, right? But they want someone in charge who's bold in, you know, the, the goal that we all have, but is the capable, skillful political manager of this. And this, Olaf Scholz, um, arguably is one of the best um, that we have in Germany and his his wealth of experience will, will 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 serve him well there. So I think this is what Germans are looking out for and this is what he will what he will embody. And I suppose if some of the other senior ministers are such energetic agents of change, you know, uh, sort of ambitious, ambitious, and in some cases, younger politicians like Baerbock or Linda or Robert Habeck, and arguably then there's a case for a more stable, more um, reassuring figure at the center, kind of keeping the whole thing, the, the whole thing grounded. 
I'd like to ask you both one final thing, which is this government is coming to office in the next few days, and it, its biggest priority, and it's already very clear, will be tackling the new wave of COVID that we're seeing here in Germany. You know, we've we've seen record infection numbers and, and, until the last couple of days, highest death rate in nine months, talk of mandatory vaccines and possibly new lockdown-style restrictions. How do you see the government respond? The new uh, traffic-like government responding to that? crisis because it's not going they're not going to have much of a honeymoon period will they now i think it was already a very tough start so uh, the first impressions i think were already quite negative because you had the impression that germany wasn't governed i mean it that because we had the outgoing and the incoming um government but it, it yeah and and so i think it's actually a tough start but i think now um that they they are getting a, a grip um at it and what i what i think is that they basically break some of the promises they've made during the election campaign. They said that there will uh, be no general obligation for everybody to get vaccinated. I think they are questioning this now um, openly. And I think it's the right move, uh, but I think it's not, not entirely easy to sell this to the German public. And I think what they will try first is some sort of yeah, lockdown for the unvaccinated through through the back door, through kind of imposing a strict 2G or 2G plus rule uh, for, for every public interaction, basically, or private interaction. Any concluding thoughts on that, Christian? So I think it's, it's a very tough test for this government that hasn't even been sworn in yet. Right, um, there is wide expectation that they, they 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 need to manage this quickly and they need to manage it well. While at the same time, it's mostly the free democrats who had a very specific COVID policy that was now put in place by this government, and basically it's outdated before they even enter enter office. And so this is for me. This is I'm not an expert on how to fight pandemics. This is for me is a test of whether this compromise that they have found amongst each other, whether this holds and whether basically the social democrats and the greens back up the FDP, whose you know influence on the on the pandemic policy has already been felt, and sort of whether they stick together in crisis, right? So this is really a first test of whether this political project of these three parties can really hold together over this, oh, even through very severe crisis. So it is also an opportunity for them to sort of make clear that this is a joint political project of all three parties. And so far, they are managing that, that, that at least that challenge really well. Yeah, I suppose managing a crisis can be a, a bonding experience of sorts, but uh, it will be a baptism of fire. Well, we'll watch all that with great interest over the coming weeks. And for the time being, I'd like to say thank you very much to both of you for joining us. Jana Pouliarin of the ECFR. Thank you, Jana. Thank you. And Christian Ordendahl of the CER. Thank you, Christian. Mm, thanks, Jeremy. That's it for this follow-up episode of Germany Elects and the series. But our analysis of the new German government continues in the magazine and online at newstatesman.com. Also look out for our in-depth coverage of the upcoming French election next April and our upcoming podcast series, France Elects. You've been listening to Germany Elects, a special world review pop-up podcast from the New Statesman. I've been Jeremy Cliff in Berlin, and this podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley and Mae Robson. Hold up. 
Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.